0: Today was a massive day of developments in the world of Trump legal. Tonight, we got the news that Trump's defense team has filed a response before the Supreme Court. Remember, right now, the federal election interference case is frozen, while the Supreme Court considers a request from Trump's lawyers to keep this case on ice as they plan their next step. Yesterday, the special counsel asked the high court to unfreeze the case— or barring that, to agree to hear it right away, basically to get things moving as soon as possible. And tonight, Trump's legal team filed its response to the special counsel's request. We are going to get into that in detail in just a few minutes. Whatever the court does now, whether the court decides to hear this case or not, and on what timeline, could have a huge impact on whether or not the federal election case against Trump actually goes to trial before the November 2024 election. Now, somehow, that is just one of the several major pieces of news we got today about Donald Trump's legal peril. Today, in Fulton County, District Attorney Fonnie Willis' election conspiracy case, there was a hearing about Ms. Willis herself and her relationship with a fellow prosecutor, Nathan Wade, a hearing that has the potential to upend that case entirely. And in just a minute, we are going to recap the very high drama that unfolded in Georgia today and break down what it means for the case against Trump. But the news we start with tonight is this, the first criminal trial of an American president. That would be Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's hush money case against Donald Trump. Today, Trump showed up to court in Manhattan, where the judge in this case dismissed an effort by Trump and his legal defense team to delay this trial. Instead, the judge set a March 25th start date. That's the day that jury selection will begin, just about a month and a half from today. And the judge said the trial should last about six weeks. Now, on the surface, This case is about Trump's affair with an adult film star named Stormy Daniels and the hush money Trump arranged to pay to keep Ms. Daniels quiet. But at its heart, D.A. Bragg is saying that this case is about something less salacious and actually quite serious, election interference.
1: It is often shorthanded to to hush money as we've laid out in uh, public court filings. The the, the case is, is, is not, you know, you know, the core of it's not, you know, money for sex. We would say it's it's about conspiring to corrupt a a presidential election and then, you know, lying in, in, in New York business records to cover it up.
0: Maybe the most memorable moment from the 2016 election, it was filled with memorable moments, but this one really stood out, the Access Hollywood tape. It was a sort of dictionary definition of October surprise. One month before that election, the Washington Post published video of the Republican candidate saying absolutely vile things about women. Things like, when you're a star, they let you do it. Grab them by the, you know, you could do anything. The Post published that tape on October 7th, one month before the election. The next day, October 8th, Stormy Daniels contacted David Pecker, the editor of the National Enquirer. Daniels was looking to sell the story that back in 2006, when Trump was already married to Melania Trump and just months after she had given birth, Daniels and Trump had an affair. Well, the editor of the Inquirer then told Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, about Daniels' story, and Cohen and Daniels immediately began negotiating about how much it would cost for that story to just go away. By the end of the month, at Trump's direction... Michael Cohen had wired Stormy Daniels $130,000 for her silence. Here was Michael Cohen testifying to Congress in 2019 about the purpose of this payment. Were you concerned about this news story
1: becoming uh, public right after the Access Hollywood study in terms of impact on the election?
0: I was concerned about it, but more importantly, Mr. Trump was and concerned about that was about my
1: it. next question. What was the president's concern about these matters becoming public in October uh, as we were about to go into an election?
0: He was concerned with the effect that it had had uh, on the campaign, on how women were seeing him, and ultimately whether or not he would have a shot. Uh, in the general election.
1: Well, you finally you finally completed that deal, as it were, on October the 20th, 28th. uh days before the
0: election. Now, the ultra-Trumpy part of this whole story is that it would not be illegal for Trump to pay off an adult film star to stay quiet about an affair. I mean, it would be a scandal, yes, but it would not be illegal. What makes this story truly Trumpy... And what makes this all allegedly illegal is how Trump paid for it. After the election, month after month, Donald Trump paid Michael Cohen back by pretending the money was part of a pre-established legal retainer. That's where the crime part comes in.
1: Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about.
0: Now, we can expect to hear a lot more from Michael Cohen once this trial begins. He is the prosecution's star witness. As for the defense and its star witness, that is a bit more complicated. Former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg, who famously took the fall for the Trump Organization in a different criminal matter, is reportedly in talks with D.A. Bragg to plead guilty to perjury in yet another Trump-related crime case. That's a lot of criming and a lot of different Trump-related matters. Now, whether this all means that Trump has just lost his most important witness here in the first criminal trial of an American president, that remains to be seen. All we know right now is that this case is going to trial. And the implications of that are somewhat profound on a number of levels. March 25th is after Super Tuesday. Donald Trump will likely be the Republican nominee for president by that date. And wow, is that going to make campaigning for president interesting?
2: I'll be here during the day and I'll be campaigning during the night. I'm going to have to sit here for months on a trial. I think
3: it's ridiculous. It's unfair.
0: Joining me now, Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal correspondent and Melissa Murray, law professor at the NYU School of Law and an MSNBC legal analyst. No two better people to have sitting right here as we unpack all of this. First, I want to get your reactions. Both of you, I'll start with you, Melissa, on about this being the first the, the D.A. Bragg's case, which was the first, you know, criminal charges Um the first in criminal indictment of a sitting, a former president, uh, is the one that's gonna go first, apparently, in terms of how the American public, uh, witnesses the judicial system holding account one of the formerly most powerful people in the world.
4: So, again, this was the first indictment to hit, and it got a lot of attention because of that. But it has sort of been in the shadow of the other indictments. For example, Jack Smith's indictment about January 6th election interference, the Vonnie Willis indictment also about election interference. But I think it's really significant that Alvin Bragg is talking about this as a species of election interference Mm -hmm. and sort of that raises the stakes. It's not quite so much about tawdry hush money payments. It's about the idea that these tawdry hush money payments were going to defraud the American electorate about who this man was when he was a candidate. And again, placed in the context of those other indictments, it paints a really damning portrait. This is a man who, before he was president, while he was president, and then after he was president, the Mar-a-Lago document indictment was doing crime. Like those are the allegations before, during and after. And I think if you take them all together, Mm -hmm. this may not be the most consequential one in terms of democracy, but it is part of a larger pattern that is deeply disconcerting. A suite of election interference, the
0: prequel to the other ones. Lisa, that's a really interesting uh, logic, Melissa, because I think a lot of people or some people have said oh, but the other ones are so much more serious. This is going to undermine the sort of gravity of the other ones by starting with something trivial. But if you look at it as kind of the opener, if you will, this
3: is the amused boosh of of election interference. I mean, is that how you see it, Lisa? I do now. I will tell you that I feel like there are a number of us who sort of owe Alvin Bragg an apology to say we discounted The importance of your case, because as Melissa said, it's been popularized as the hush money case. And even though the crimes that are being alleged here are falsification of business records in order to commit or conceal another felony. And he's always been clear about the fact that that other felony could be either state or federal election law. Notwithstanding that, a lot of us were like, oh, this is insignificant. This isn't really that big of a deal. But actually, the way that it's framed now It is the opener to a much larger panoply of election interference and fraud that persists throughout Donald Trump's political career, and also persists throughout his life. I mean, Alex, as you know, I've been following the civil fraud case that is not criminal in nature right now, but the consequences are severe enough that they might as well be at least as far as Donald Trump yeah, is concerned. Yeah,
0: well, yes, and we're about to find out more on the Angoron case tomorrow. I, I do wonder though, it, it, that old chestnut, Michael Cohen, is yes. going to be center stage and. What you make of that, given, um, you know, his sort of, he is an E-Day fix in the <laughs> popular uh, imagination and, and how much that either helps or hurts D.A. Bragg's case.
4: So. Yes. Michael Cohen has a pass. This is probably not something that's unusual for the prosecutor's office. Frequently, prosecutors have to have, as their star witnesses, individuals who have unsavory records. Yeah. And so this is not going to be a big deal. I mean, will it be sensational for the public? Will it be talked about in the press? Undoubtedly. But the idea that you have as your star witness, or at least part of your star witness, is that someone who has a criminal pass, that's not as big a deal, I think. And more importantly, what Michael Cohen is going to be testifying to isn't necessarily the things for which he has already been punished. He's going to be talking about and making the connections between Donald Trump and this catch and kill strategy Mm -hmm. that was coordinated with the National Enquirer Company and David Pecker in order to conceal these acts from the public. And I think that's slightly different. I mean, yes, he has a past, but this is something he can draw a connection to that is unrelated to his past.
0: And and, and I would say, The the looming specter of Alan Weiselberg, who yes. is just this the poor man that keeps taking the knee for Trump and going to Rikers for it. I say this as if it's happened repeatedly, but it's it's always looming out there, right? Right. Uh, the fact that this individual may be the the defense star witness and maybe at the same time pleading guilty to perjury in a separate case. I just does that not undermine the gravity of his testimony.
3: First of all, I don't think he will be the defense's witness at all if he pleads guilty to perjury, because the first thing that he will be susceptible to is having to confess to the jury that not only has he pled guilty to an unrelated criminal tax fraud scheme and done time for it, but he has recently been convicted for perjury and and get another unrelated matter that's not a good setup for a witness i think actually if weisselberg is indeed in plea negotiations that are completed before this trial that's a big win for the da's office why because a number of the meetings that allegedly took place in furtherance of the scheme are between three people the defendant donald trump yep michael cohen and alan weisselberg and guess what when we compare the alleged crimes of those three people guess who looks the best Michael Cohen. Yeah, right. True.
0: I mean, it's Everything's relative, right? The, one of the things they're asking for in this, Lisa, is a change of venue. They're yep. saying that Trump can't get a fair shake in Manhattan. Um, Do you think there's any—is that within the realm of possibility in all this?
3: No, and they haven't asked for it yet. One of the things that came up today was in talking about jury selection, Todd Blanche, who's one of Mr. Trump's lawyers, essentially said, I need to know why people who raise their hand and say I can't be fair in this case are saying that because their answers may be helpful to me in my planned venue change motion. But Mershon's answer to that was— Mershon the judge. Mershon the judge. I'm sorry. Juan Mershon, who is the judge in this case, said— Is the risk that pretrial publicity surrounding your client poses to justice in this case going to be any less a few months from now, a year from now, or, you know, by analogy, in a different jurisdiction? No, it's as our colleague Andrew Weissman was saying today about the Enron case that he was involved in, you know, two decades ago. It wasn't the problem that the case was being tried in Houston where Enron was headquartered. It would have been a problem anywhere because everyone nationwide at the time understood that Enron was a front-page headline-making yeah. business fraud. Um, Melissa, j- uh,
0: jury selection, as Lisa points out, it's going to start March 25th. Let's, can we just talk about the reality of the calendar moving forward here? I mean, it is, in a word, bonkers, right? You have this case at six weeks. Who knows what SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, does on this immunity claim, but it, it increasingly— based on conversations I've had with random people, but many of them legal legal experts, that this case could go to trial, the federal election interference case, which would not be that amused bush Bush, that would be decidedly an entree, (laughs) would happen in the summer,
4: right? Yeah.
0: There is, if if you're in a criminal case, you have to be in the courtroom. For sure. If you are the defendant, you got to be there. Yeah. The practical implications
4: for his campaigning are catastrophic, are they not? Well, again, this is part of his defense to this or his arguments toward the Supreme Court in urging them to freeze the proceedings below, like to not allow this trial to happen. Um, he wants the just the D.C. Circuit's opinion stayed and he wants this to sort of be put on ice. And he says it's imperative that it be put on ice so that the American public has the chance —to weigh in on his candidacy, and he gets the chance to campaign. And so, again, this was always a tight timeline. It was the reason that Jack Smith made such a concerted decision to only charge Donald Trump and only to levy four criminal charges against him to keep this lean and mean and keep this moving— Donald Trump has done his level best to delay this, and it's worked so far. The fact that we got to the D.C. Circuit, the fact that the D.C. Circuit took more than a month to issue its very methodical, very deliberate, but very late unanimous opinion, means that Donald Trump has pushed the calendar back. And we're not just running up against the campaign. We're also running up against the DOJ's own internal deadline. Does that
0: apply, though? I mean, does that apply? Because it's not a support—you say no. That 60-day—the 60-day rule. No,
4: but I think if we keep getting further and further out, that is going to be a discussion. Can we get so close to the election that the entire process gets tainted by it?
3: Yeah, I think the policy as it stands applies to investigative steps. It doesn't apply to a trial per se. But I think Melissa is right that— The policy concerns animating DOJ's own policy about how to treat legal proceedings before an election will at least prompt a wider scale discussion about how appropriate a trial is as you're bumping up against the election. If we're looking beyond September,
0: a presidential (laughs) candidate, (laughs) which has never happened. Yes. Let's not lose sight of the this sort of I mean, it's a it's a day for history. We know that the first criminal trial of an American president will be starting Next month, a little over a month from today. Um, Lisa Rubin, Melissa Murray, don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about the rest of all of it um, (laughs) in just a few minutes. Coming up, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis took to the stand today to forcefully argue against her disqualification from the election interference case. And it was really something. But first, Trump has dropped the immunity hot potato in the Supreme Court's lap. What do they do now? Don't go anywhere. At any moment now, we could conceivably get a ruling from the Supreme Court on whether or not Donald Trump is immune from criminal prosecution for his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The clock started tonight after Trump filed his final brief to the court responding to special counsel Jack Smith, who yesterday urged the nine justices to reject Trump's repeated attempts to delay this trial. In his filing this evening, Trump accuses the special counsel of playing politics, saying there is no mystery about the special counsel's motivation. The special counsel seeks to bring President Trump to trial and to secure a conviction before the November election in which President Trump is the leading candidate against President Biden. Back with me is MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin. I mean, I found I am not a lawyer, Lisa, which I say really ad nauseum, but this was Plainly, not very much of a legal document in in, in the reading
3: of it. Well, parts of it are a legal document, but the very first point, and obviously the thing that you get to first has absolutely nothing to do with the law. It's just Trump's election interference posts disguised as a legal filing. It's one long
0: truth social.
3: Correct. And dressed up with citations and the like. He is essentially saying not only that the special counsel is hyper-partisan, of which there's no evidence a special counsel was appointed to avoid the appearance of exactly. partisanship but that somehow the special counsel's interest in having this case tried before the election is itself evidence that the special counsel has a thumb on the scale for the incumbent president right well, that's kind of ridiculous to me on its face the special counsel wants american voters to have all of the information before they vote. And he understands that he's up against a clock because the very prospect of bringing this person to trial could evaporate if he is reelected. It's also a tell, too, isn't it? Like Trump's effectively saying, if this
0: goes to trial, there's going to be a conviction that's going to help Biden. I mean, it's just he's the logic is revealing, I think. It also they make the case that You know, it's not the American public that has a vested interest in seeing the conclusion of this trial and a verdict. The American public has an interest in seeing Donald Trump campaign. And so anything that would stop that from happening is somehow
3: counter to the the interests of the American. Well, look,
0: there are two
3: parties here who are both staking a claim as to what is in the best interest of the American public. And I guess the question is, who do you trust to best represent the interests of the American public? The candidate who wants to see himself elected or the person who is representing the United States government in the interests of justice? I would stake my claim with him.
0: Yeah, I do wonder um, if you have, for people out there, including myself, who are thinking, okay. white-knuckling it through the next couple of days, what should we be looking for in terms of response from the Supreme Court? Whether a stay, whether, you know, granting cert, effectively taking the case up, whether saying nothing at all, what's your expectation?
3: My expectation is that we'll hear something from the Supreme Court in the next few days. And of course, Monday is a federal holiday, so you can count that as part of your weekend and all likelihood. If the Supreme Court doesn't grant the stay that Trump is asking for, then all bets are off. Judge Chutkin goes back to pretrial proceedings. Even if at that point they were to grant a review, it would not impede her from returning the case to all of the motion practice and other things that need to happen to schedule a trial um, or just setting that jury questionnaire in motion, which was supposed to happen in February. If, on the other hand, we are waiting a few days, there is a school of thought that what we're waiting for is that there are folks who will dissent from whatever is going to happen the court is giving those people time to write those could be dissents from a grant of cert those could be dissents from a stay the longer it takes to get this ruling the more likely it is that it will go in donald trump's favor i believe okay so TikTok.
0: the longer it takes the better it is for trump by on its face it is but in the in the long term as well That's absolutely true. Immediately useful information from our favorite one. I shouldn't take favorite. You know, don't. Well, I, you know, you're the best. Thank you, Lisa. Lisa Rubin. Uh, We have a lot more to get to tonight. So, so much more, including the hours long, hours long hearing in Fulton County, Georgia, about whether the district attorney in charge of the racketeering case against Donald Trump should be removed from that case over a relationship with one of her prosecutors. It was a bombshell hearing, really the dictionary definition of bombshell. But what does it mean for the former president? That's next. Did the former president of the United States conspire with 18 other people to overturn a legitimate election? That is the question at the heart of the election conspiracy case in Fulton County, Georgia. But today's hearing in Fulton County was about none of that. Instead, we got what you might call the most consequential sideshow in the history of sideshows. Right now, several of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election conspiracy case are trying to get Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis thrown off this case by accusing her of having an inappropriate romantic relationship with a special prosecutor on her staff named Nathan Wade. They accuse D.A. Willis of hiring Mr. Wade in order to enrich herself with lavish vacations and other gifts Mr. Wade bought for Miss Willis. In a legal filing two weeks ago, D.A. Willis admitted to having a relationship with Mr. Wade, saying that began only after she hired Mr. Wade to work on this case in 2022. Now, today's hearing began with an explosive allegation from a former friend of D.A. Willis, who claimed that Willis has lied about when the relationship began.
1: You have no doubt that their romantic relationship was in effect from 2019 until the last time you spoke with her. No doubt. Did you observe them do things that are uh, common among people having a romantic relationship?
2: Yes. Such as? Can you give us an example?
4: Hugging, kissing,
0: with oh. affection. That was a bombshell of the morning. Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade potentially lied to the court in their filings about when their relationship began. The rest of the hearing mostly revolved around the question, did Fonnie Willis benefit financially from her relationship with Nathan Wade? Mr. Wade was next to take the stand, and he told the court in no uncertain terms that Fonnie Willis was not the kind of date that let you pick up the tab.
3: If you've ever spent any time with Ms. Willis, you understand that she's a very independent proud woman.
5: I
0: object. Not.
3: So she's going to... De- um, overall, Mr. Wade. So she's going to oh. insist that she carries her own weight.
0: After Mr. Wade's testimony, we got our second big surprise of the day just as a lawyer for one of the defendants was making the case that D.A. Willis needed to come in and testify herself.
5: We need read here to go over all of this and to explain exactly what happened. So we was asked the court uh, that, that the that uh, the
4: court allowed this Willis to be called and interrogated
2: on
0: uh, these death. And I will too, Your Honor. D.A. Willis showed up to take the stand. Throughout her testimony, the D.A. went out of her way to establish that she is, in fact, very independent and that she is not afraid of getting angry or taking on adversaries or calling out what she believes are outright lies.
1: So let's be clear, because you've lied in this, this. Let me tell you which one you lied in. Right here. I think you lied right here. No, no, I'm no, 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 no. This is the truth. Judge, and this, It, 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 it is, is a lie.
3: It is gonna, a lie.
1: You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial.
0: Throughout her testimony, D.A. Willis portrayed herself as a strong, independent woman and that the relationship between her and Mr. Wade was one of equals. That is a posture that cut to the heart of the allegations against her.
1: Nobody gives me anything. I am sure that the source of the money is always the work, sweat and tears of me. There were never money that he gave me, That that wasn't the nature of our relationship. We would have brutal arguments about the fact that I am your equal. I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. And so there was tension always in our relationship, which is why I was give him his money back. I don't need anybody to foot my bills. The
0: only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. That was Fonnie Willis's defense today. She was not taking money from Mr. Wade, and she was not benefiting financially from their relationship because that is not the kind of person Fonnie Willis is. The question now is: how will the judge here understand those arguments and what does her testimony mean for the future of this case against Donald Trump and the 14 others still facing charges? Melissa Murray is back with me to talk about all of that coming up next.
1: It's ridiculous to me that the you lied on Monday, and yet here we still are. It seems today that a lawyer writes a lie, and then it's printed for all of the world to see. Let's be clear, because you've lied in this. This. Let me tell you which one you lied in. Right here? I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. Judge, no. This is the truth, Judge. And this, it, 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 it is a lie. It is gonna, a lie. Right.
0: During a contentious hearing in Atlanta, Georgia today, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis spent more than two hours sparring with defense lawyers for Donald Trump and his co-defendants over what she calls lies, smears, and innuendos about her relationship with Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Wade is the special prosecutor Willis hired to manage Fulton County's sprawling election interference case against former President Trump and his associates. Back with me now to discuss is NYU law professor Melissa Murray. Melissa, thank you for sticking around. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are levels of this, right? The, the, we, we talked about, you know, coming into this block how Willis really asserted herself as an independent woman, someone who's incredibly strong, obviously a vocal advocate on her own behalf, not someone who, in theory, would be wanting a free ride from a man. She also went part of the way in explaining that she paid Nathan Wade back yeah. for a lot of these quote-unquote lavish yeah. trips. I want to play a little bit of sound in terms of her sort of general argument on that front
1: so he is the one that would book the travel but we need to be clear when we're talking about just because he booked it doesn't mean like i don't consider him having taken me any place he trying paid to, for those he did not though okay. because the reason i consider that he did not is i gave him his money back for the cruise and for aruba yeah i gave him his money before we ever went on that trip
0: you gave him cash before you ever went on the trip Mm-hmm. okay the reason we're playing this is because at the heart of this allegation is that she somehow profited financially from their relationship. Do you think that that, you know, that kind of testimony, which is clear, if not specific, like she can't, she's not pointing to ATM withdrawals or whatever. Is that enough to satisfy
4: the judge in this case? It could be. Again, this all sort of depends on how this appears to Scott McAfee. Yeah. And you know, he's going to be the ultimate determinant here. But It doesn't strike me as odd that a professional woman is in a relationship with someone who also is in the profession and they reimburse each other for expenses, for things that they do jointly. You know, this isn't foreign to me. I have done this in the past. And I imagine it would not be entirely foreign to the judge that this is something that happens. You know, what might be more unusual to individuals is the fact that she professes to have paid for all of this in cash. And that might strike some individuals as odd. Like, you know, how much cash do you have on hand? And again, didn't strike me as entirely odd. I mean, there's a very long history within the black community of distrust of financial institutions. Uh, Mirsa Baradaran, who is an NYU law graduate and a professor at UC Irvine, has written a terrific book, How the Other Half Banks, that talks about how certain minority communities just don't have the same relationship with traditional financial institutions and are more likely to have large quantities of cash on hand for expenditures like this. But again, it might not resonate with someone like Scott McAfee, although other aspects of her story would. Well, and to those other aspects, I mean, I, I, I do what,
0: what you th- want to know what you think about generally the posture that she adopted today, which was combative, um, strong, assertive. Um, you know, if the contention here is this woman is looking for, a, again, a free ride from a man that she hired to sort of get over on the system, I would think that that was a fairly effective rhetorical tool, if nothing else. You
4: know, the defiance, the sort of independence, like I don't need someone to pay my way. I pay my way. In fact, a lot of the difficulties in our romantic relationship came from the fact that I was independent and he was looking for a different kind of woman. That may have played out. But let's just also put out there, this is a prosecutor in a major case against a major public figure and we are talking about her dating strategy and whether a former, current, whatever, romantic partner believed that she was too independent to be in a relationship. Like, that's not where you want to be right. in this case. Especially a case of the, this magnitude.
0: For sure. I, and on that end, I, you know, there were moments where she was directly kind of sparring with the judge who
4: is going to be the same judge in her case. Well, I mean, there's a comfort there. Like, they have worked in the same office before, so perhaps this is an aspect of the familiarity. I mean, this is a relatively small legal community, and many of these individuals are repeat players who have interacted with each other before. But, yeah, this was a lot of drama and not necessarily a lot of clarification. Do you think it matters? I mean, there was a lot of back and forth about when this relationship
0: started. Her uh, ex-friend says... The relationship started years before both Wade and Willis signed an affidavit saying it did. Yeah. Does does that matter? I mean, it's independent of the charges here, but if there's lying on an affidavit, how significant
4: is that in terms of whether or not she's taken off this case? An affidavit is sworn testimony. It is a writing under oath that is submitted to the court. So if it is the case that what was represented in that affidavit was not true, and in fact, the relationship started much earlier, as her former friend testified, then she's lied to the court, effectively. And that does, I think, become grounds for her disqualification. And Again, this is a she said, she said, very Real Housewives of Atlanta yes, kind of moment. Yes. Um, so, you know, who knows? But everything kind of hinges on this question of disqualification, because if she and Wade are disqualified, then this trial is kind of up in the air, which is exactly what Donald Trump wants. Yes, it is. This that That is why this all matters. Fonnie yes. Willis and Nathan
0: Wade... Can go off into the golden sunset together. But insofar as it affects the actual, you know, holding of uh, people, holding people accountable and a large number of whom um, are very involved in the American political system, it all matters. Melissa Murray, thank you so much, as always, my friend. It's great to see you coming up. A War of Words, new details about how behind the scenes, Biden's lawyers fought with the DOJ over disparaging remarks about Biden's age prior to the publication of special counsel Robert Hur's report. That's next.
3: I can tell you that his insinuations or the suggestions in the report uh, about the president's interview just simply don't correspond with my recollection of how that interview went. And I frankly don't understand why they're in the report.
0: President Biden's personal lawyer publicly crit- criticized the report from special counsel Robert Hur after its release last week. But tonight we are learning that Biden's legal team privately made their displeasure known to Attorney General Merrick Garland before that report was ever released. In a newly released letter, Biden's lawyers write, we object to the multiple denigrating statements about President Biden's memory, which violate longstanding DOJ practice and policy. The associate deputy attorney general responded a day later, writing, the identified language is neither gratuitous nor unduly prejudicial. It is offered to explain special counsel Her's conclusions about the president's state of mind in possessing and retaining classified information. Special counsel Hur will soon get a chance to tell his side of the story. NBC News confirmed this evening that Herr will testify publicly before the House Judiciary Committee on March 12th. Joining me now are Jennifer Palmieri, co-host of MSNBC's How to Win in 2024 podcast, and Jen Saki, host of MSNBC's Inside with Jen Saki. It's a double thread of Jen tonight. Ladies, thank you <laughs> both for GPs. being here. <laughs> How I'm just gonna have to refer to you as Miss Saki and Miss Palmieri. Um this Jen Psaki, is why
5: everyone in the Obama White House called us Saki and Palmieri because they're both
0: Jen P's. They had a reason. <laughs> uh Saki. Are you surprised, I mean, being um, a White House expert, as you both are, but about the level of combativeness that is on display between the White House and the DOJ and the fact that the DOJ essentially, it seems, did not heed any of the White House's complaints?
2: I'm not that surprised. It spilled out a bit, obviously, in the last week. But there have been reported frustrations at moments um, that have been reported about the president's frustration, about the pace of movement on, say, voting rights and, and other uh, other priorities for him. I would say for this, the view, it seems, from not just the White House, but a number of legal experts I've talked to, you've talked to, is that, well, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, was never going to kind of— um, not appoint a special counsel. He decided to do that, although they're frustrated with that initial step, or, like, scrap the report or not release the whole report. There were steps in the process, including getting updates to see what the scope of what they were doing was. And also, there was language in there that, in the view, clearly, of people in the White House, but also nutshots by them, by other legal experts outside, kind of It went way past what his scope was and what he should have done. And there were things, as we all know, when we got the report, Alex, all of us were trying to read through and scan through it. And it was unclear if if he was saying or concluding that he wittingly— um, kept the classified documents. You don't know until after page 200-plus that he didn't keep them, right? And obviously, this language is what has been taken out um, and used by Republicans as sort of a political dagger. So, I'm not surprised that it's been a bit of vitriol. Uh, I, I am a little surprised it spilled out into public, but sometimes that happens with, with uh, situations like this that are, are of such great public interest. Yeah. The
0: question of whether the president willingly <laughs> retained the documents is litigated in it, the, the conclusion is clear, but the the summary makes it sound more nefarious than Unclear. quite obviously yeah. even her determined. But but Jen, to the question of sort of the uh, shall we say talking out of school about President Biden, you know the White House compares what's in this report to what James Comey did to Hillary Clinton, and it is right. a searing comparison, and it's something that it feels like Merrick Garland. When he was sworn into office, what was going to go out of his way to prevent from happening again? Are you surprised that this kind of report came out of this kind of Justice Department?
5: I'm I'm surprised at the Assistant Attorney General's response, which you know, I mean, I watch a, you know, we all have because we work at MSNBC, we have a lot of legal expert friends, and just the characterization that. Um, that uh, her made about about the president's state of mind and acuity and all of that, which is just like so be I mean, it's it's even worse than what Comey did. Right. In terms of, uh, he, he you know, he, he criticized uh, Secretary Clinton's actions. He didn't go to her state of mind. And then, you know, now this, this is like a whole other this is a whole other level. So it is um, I think that but, you know, Merrick Garland. Has not, uh, you know, has generally sided on come down on the side of protecting what he sees as the independence of the Department of Justice, even if that, even if in this case is, you know, a lot of legal experts think her is bent is 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 going in the wrong direction. He's not going to. He's not. You know, Garland's not going to step into to stop that. Um, But what that assistant attorney general is arguing is pretty surprising.
0: I do wonder, um, Jen, it sort of seems like, uh, you know, her is going to the Hill. Republicans have their knives out uh, on this. They really want the transcript, if not the audio of the interview released. It seems to me like a foregone conclusion that this is going to come out. Do Do you think that we are going to be combing through five hours of interview transcript in the near future? And if so, you know how does the White House handle that,
2: Jen? Sock it. It sure feels like it, Alex. I mean, we'll see what happens. And just you know, like they say about relationships, it's complicated because on one hand, if we if everybody in the country who was paying attention to this was as nerdy and had as much time, and it was their job to do this, like all of us, and we're actually going to comb through it, which we all will, then. It might serve the White House well, right? But the problem is that that's probably not what's going to happen, because people don't have time. And so, what will happen is that small pieces of this could be pulled out. It's really hard to make an assessment about whether this is good or not, because none of us have seen it, right? But that's the challenge, right, is that the way people consume information today, the likelihood is these two lines, this additional line, the audio of, of, of different pieces that would um, validate what her was saying, even though the context may be a longer line of questioning, may be that he had just come back from a call about uh, the the attack on Israel. So, that's the challenge for the White House. I do think, though, that Republicans who are— out there spouting that they want her to come testify, they got to be careful about what they're asking for, too. Right. Because most of this report is not good for Trump. Right. I mean, it clears Joe Biden. <laughs> there are parts of this but that politically, as we all know, um, are over the top and are not are terrible for the Biden team. But there's also a very clear comparison from Robert Hurst, somebody who is a Trump appointee, right, that is making clear how Trump handled this in such a poor, un, uh, you know, uncooperative way. And he'd have to speak to that on the Hill as well. So I, I think this is also him going to the Hill is not a clear win for Republicans like they maybe think it is either.
0: It's a double edged sword. But I mean, I do think, Jen, there is some utility, Jen, Palmieri. Harry, there is some utility <laughs> in getting out first, is there not? I mean, I think we've totally. learned that from the Bill Barr years and and even this report, you know, does the White House need to yeah. lead on this? Time and place of your choosing, it's like yeah. right? It's like responding. Yeah.
5: So, what Saki would say when she was a State Department spokesperson, we will respond at a time and a place of our choosing.
2: Yes. If on the, a, on if a if Friday evening. <laughs> right? At 5 p.m. If
5: the, if, if the Assistant Attorney General's letter is getting out. The report itself is getting out. That is going to happen. And particularly, obviously, if, if the Hill gets it. And so I think that, you know, first of all, that, that her, I mean, Jenna's right about that her hearing, it's hard to say. That is not going to be a good day, I, I predict, for her or for the Republicans, because the facts, you know, the, the actual facts are on Biden's side. Um, the House Democrats are very effective in these committee settings at, you know, at, at sort of deconstructing. Same thing happened when Jim Comey went up to testify on yeah. Capitol Hill about his report. Mm-hmm. He got crucified. It was a very good day for the Clinton campaign. Um, and so I think the same thing will happen here. And, you know, the White House could figure out, you know, do they do that? Do they put it out the day of the hearing, the day before the hearing, you know, near the hearing, coordinate that with the House Democrats and present it, you know, the way, um, you know, with integrity this time, but the way yeah. Bob Barr did when he presented the Mueller report, you know, this, these are the things you need Bad Bob Bauer Yep. Up, say, These are things you need to know and package it the way, uh, you know, the, that that is that is putting the facts in the in, in the right uh, context.
0: Jen Palmieri and Jen Saki, Thank you, Jen's, for your time tonight. <laughs> that does it for our show this evening.